good day. Welcome to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Dr. Charles Cotillo, the Royal Historic Society. I'm a host on the channel, and today I'm pleased and honored to, tru- honored to have with us Professor Alexander Watson. Professor Watson is Professor of History at Goldsmiths University of London. I'm sorry, Goldsmiths University at, in London. He is the author of a, of a number of well-received and indeed renowned books, uh, one of which garnered him the Wolferson Prize and the other one the Frankel Prize. And today we are discussing his latest book, The Fortress, Bramazo and the Making of Europe's Bloodlands, published by Basic Books. Welcome, Professor Watson. Well, thank you very much, and thank you very much for having me on. It's, it's, it's a huge pleasure to be talking to you. Professor, what is the thesis of your book? So, uh, the book is about a few things. It's about the longest siege of the First World War, the Siege of Przemyśla, which lasted around uh, 180 days. It took place between October, well, September, October 1914, went on until March 1915. Uh, so, it, at its core, that's what it's about. It's about the longest siege of the First World War. But within that, the book also situates this in the greater catastrophe that took place in East Central Europe from from 1914 until until 1950. And the, the, the thesis of the book, the underlying thesis of the book, using this siege to bring this out, is that Europe's, East Central Europe's catastrophe, where, where you have genocide and the Holocaust, huge ethnic cleansing in the 1940s, that to understand how East Central Europe breaks down, you have to go back not simply to the start of the Second World War, to the rise of the dictators, or even to the Russian Revolution, to 1917, but actually, you've got to go back to the First World War in 1914, that, that strategies of starvation, brutal fighting, ethnic cleansings already kick off right from, right from the outbreak of the First World War in 1914. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the city's history prior to the outbreak of the Great War? Yeah, sure. So, East Central Europe, um, well, Przemyśla was, was I, I write this in the book, it was, it, it was a crossroad of cultures. East Central Europe was a very, very ethnically mixed place for most of its history. Um, in the area that this city is, is situated, there were Polish-speaking people, Ukrainian-speaking people, lots of Jews, some Germans. The Hungarians and Slovaks weren't that far off either. And Przemysl was was built uh, in about nineteen uh, in about nine hundred. So it was founded. The city was founded a thousand years before my story takes place. In part because it was on hills, it was an easily defensible situation, but also because it was on trade routes um, going from east to west and also from. Uh, South from Hungary up to the up to the Baltic in the north. So this was this was this was a junction. It was a junction place, a place where peoples met, peoples exchanged, peoples moved all the time, and where lots of peoples of different religions and different languages settled. Um, it changed hands a lot of the time it, through through the millennium before my story. It was uh, um, for a while um, in uh, kind of Ukrainian hands, the the, the, the kingdom of, of, of Rus, um, medieval kingdom of Rus. It was in medieval Polish hands. There was a um, Hungarian king who ruled it briefly, um, but. By my story, by by the start of my story, it's in Habsburg hands. It's it's part of um, 
Habsburg Empire, an enormous Central European empire, empire which had 11 languages um, and about 50, 55 million people living in it. And Przemysl by that point had become uh, a pretty important provincial city of around 50,000 people. Uh, but also around this city, the Habsburg Empire had built a fortress, and Przemysl had become the Habsburg Empire's main defensive position, its main bastion in the east. Now, in terms of the um, fortifications uh, that uh, uh, rang the city, um, how would you compare them in terms of um, uh, quality to, uh, I'm thinking of particularly two type, two different um uh, fortifications. One, of course, is in uh, Belgium, and the second one was the um, uh, fortifications that uh, Russia maintained until, I believe, in, in essence, that they um, um, let them go or no longer found them usable circa 1910-1912 in um, uh, Poland. How would you compare with those two sets of uh, fortifications in terms of quality? So, compared with fortifications in the West, Przemyślers were were less advanced, less uh, less well maintained, less less updated. Um, one of the problems that fortification builders, fortification building is very very popular among continental European powers in the late 19th century. Most big land powers build them. Germany has a wave of fortification building in the 1870s. Um, France does too, Belgium and, and, and Russia. The problem is all this fortification building starts uh, just at the point at which artillery technology begins to change very, very rapidly, far more rapidly than people are expecting. Um, guns get heavier, they uh, cease to use black powder and, began to, and begin to use much more powerful smokeless propellants, which means that you can, um, you can have projectiles that are bigger and that can fire further. Um, they become, uh, from the 1890s, end of the 1890s, quick firing as well. So you've got... Uh, you've got a completely different set of armaments by around 1900, 1910 than you, had in, than you had 30, 40 years earlier in 1870. And that makes all of these very extensive fortifications that all of the great powers, all of the continental powers have built, um, obsolete. And differing powers, depending on their bank balances and their military priorities, um, update the fortifications to differing degrees. So France does... Uh, and and Belgium with Liège, France of course with Verdun, uh, do update their fortifications. They develop um, new ways in which to cushion uh, the new heavy shell fire. Um, the Russians don't so much. The Russians' big fortification. They've got a couple of couple of them on the eastern front: Ivanogrod and um, Novogorodsk, um, today called Modlin. And they, they, they aren't updated, and as you say, they are, they are decommissioned. Certainly, um, Novogorodsk is, is, is decommissioned, but then hurriedly put back into, into commission at the First World War. Um, Przemyśle kind of stands in between. It, stand, it, it stands between the more advanced fortifications of the West and the decommissioned ones of Russia. There are advances made, and there are, there's constant building and rebuilding up until 1906 um, in order to try and um, make this very strong ring of forts. And it's a really, really impressive, visually impressive set of fortifications. The ring of the circumference is about 30 miles 
30 miles in circumference. So it's a, it's a long stretch of fortifications. Um, but um, in 1906, a new, a new uh, general staff chief, Conrad von Hürzendorf, is appointed to lead the Habsburg army. And he doesn't have a lot of faith in, in fortifications. He believes in war of maneuver. And he removes funds from the fortification program, especially on the Eastern Front. He's still willing to build them on the Italian Front. Uh, and um, as a result, for the 10 years before the First World War, Przemysl ceases to be updated. And that's a problem. In 1914, that, that's, that's, that's a problem. It doesn't have enough food, but also, um, when compared with the latest guns, what the latest guns can do, its forts aren't capable of withstanding them. Anything over about 15-centimeter caliber, and they're expected to collapse. Tests are done and uh, tests are done by the Habsburg army, and they show pretty categorically that any any opponent with the latest the latest ordnance will will smash through Przemysl's fortifications very very quickly. Can you tell us a little bit more about uh, the um, character, and I suppose in particular the strategic missteps of uh, the uh, K and K army's uh, chief of the general staff, uh, Konrad von Hotzendorf? Sure. So. Uh, Conrad, well, I, I describe him in the book as that 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 most dangerous man and uh, a, a, a romantic who believes himself to be a realist, and that that's kind of who who Conrad was. He was um, he uh, had a reputation as being a tactical genius, but he had he had very very limited. Uh, experience of war he'd he'd fought uh, or he'd, he'd been a part of um some anti-guerrilla campaigns uh in the uh 1870s in the in in the balkans in bosnia but beyond that he had no practical experience of war um but he was nonetheless very widely respected within the habsburg military um he wrote a book on tactics which uh, became kind of the must-read the Habsburg officers but really wasn't updated in the decades between when he wrote it um, as a staff college instructor and 1914 when war broke out and of course with the with the increasingly powerful armament his idea that um, soldiers could 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 um, attack without um, artillery, that it was all about morale, it was all about psychology and willpower. Uh, these ideas very, very quickly um, proved disastrous for the Habsburg army uh, on the Eastern Front in 1914. The other thing about him that I, I make quite a lot of in the book is that he was, he was in, in love with a, a woman about half his age. He He'd had a previous marriage. He had sons by by his previous marriages. His wife had died, and he'd he'd become obsessed with a, a younger woman, a, a a noble woman called Gina von von Reininghaus, and um, he was very very keen to uh, impress her. He wanted to marry her, but Austria, very strict Catholic country, very strict divorce laws. She was already married, and he became convinced that he would only be able to marry her and get over these hurdles if he came back a war hero. And you kind of see in the missteps that he makes some of his inability to, to, to recognize um, his mistakes, inability to admit to his mistakes, crucially inability to learn from his mistakes. Some of this is just about his obstinate character, but some of it as well is about fear of if he admits to this stuff, then he's not going to end up with this dream of marrying this 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 woman who's he, whom he's obsessed with. 
Would you say that he that, um, he could be characterized as more than usually uncomp- incompetent? Oh, definitely. Yeah, without it, without any doubt whatsoever. I mean, ge- generals, first of all, generals get bad press, and I think a lot of it is is unfair. Um, the Germans, the the the, the, the British, you know, in, in in Britain, there's this very famous saying of lions led by donkeys. The idea that British troops were great, but the generals were were terrible and stupid, and that kind of stereotype doesn't really hold in a number of ways for most of these men. They were dealing with a very unfamiliar situation, a new type of industrial war. For sure, people say, yeah, you know, but what about um, the Russo-Japanese War of 1905, which saw trenches, or even the American Civil War, which, you know, had been, you know, has a good claim to be the world's first industrial war. But nonetheless, for Europeans' experience, um, even in the modern age, war was something uh, quick, won by decisive manoeuvre. This was, this, this was, you know, the, the hallmark, the model that they're going for is the Franco-Prussian War of 1870-71. That's, there's a lot of people who expect that things will, that war look, will look like that. So they're dealing with a very, very, very um, unfamiliar and to a degree unexpected situation. Uh, they're grappling with how to use modern armaments effectively, how to get forward effectively in the face of rifles, machine gun fire, and above all, quick-firing artillery. Um, and most of them are willing to adopt technology, are willing to experiment, and they learn. They, they gradually learn. Um, that's the case in the British Army. It's the case in the German Army. But it doesn't. It consists. It's even the case from 1905 to 1914 in the Russian army, but it doesn't seem to be so in the Habsburg army, which has huge problems, learning lessons, analysing lessons, and part of that is due to the institutional issues within the army itself. But a good part of it is due to Conrad, who continually makes mistake after mistake after mistake, an entirely avoidable mistake that he's already made before. So yeah, I, mean, I think Conrad is incompetent. Would it be correct to say of the five great powers who participated in the Great War, uh, the K&K Army was the least prepared of them? Um, yes, I think it would be. That wasn't wholly the Keuka, so Keuka, the, the Habsburg Army. That wasn't wholly the Habsburg Army's fault. One of the reasons why it was less prepared than Germany, France, or uh, or, or Russia was simply that it had a smaller budget. Uh, there wasn't the political will to spend large amounts of money on um, uh, on the army as as there was in the other major land powers. Um, there wasn't also the money. Uh, there wasn't the same wealth or taxation base as in Germany or France, which which was made things complicated. And the empire, as I said, had. 11 different language groups. There was a lot of pork barrel politics going on in order to attempt to keep all the different uh, nationalities, politicians happy. And that in turn impacted on how much money was left over for the army. So compared with, compared with the other major land powers, yes, the Habsburg army was less well prepared. I suppose the other reason, as well as budget, was um, 
was in terms of training, in terms of its expectations of what war would be like. And that was down to having Conrad as its chief trainer as well as leader, which, uh, which, which did it huge damage in 1914 when he had this tactical doctrine that, 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 that emphasized that willpower alone would get men forward. And that broke up in a hail of fire very, very early on. Um, on the other hand, it was still more prepared than either Italy whom it later fought, and which had an even lower tax base. And it was actually also more prepared than Britain. That's worth emphasizing, too. Britain, of course, didn't have a conscript army. It wasn't prepared to fight a large land war, and it ended up manufacturing um, a mass army, as, of course, as you know, did the U.S., during the war itself. So those would be the exceptions, Italy and Britain, within a European context, but among the major land powers, for sure, um, the, the, the Habsburg army was less well prepared, both, both in terms of the budget that it had, the equipment as a result, and also intellectually the ideas about war that Conrad disseminated among his officers. Can you relate to us briefly the um, disaster or series of disasters suffered on the battlefield by the K&K army in the um, beginning, the first weeks of the war? which resulted in the beginning of the siege in uh, late October, early November 1914. Yeah, sure. So um, everyone knows that the huge battles that went on on the Western Front and, of course, the German invasion of Belgium and then France in August and September 1914. But most people in Britain and the U.S. think have much less idea about what, what went on in the East. And, of course, the Eastern Front is much more important in, in, in world historical terms. This is the epicenter of the Holocaust. It's the epicenter of ethnic cleansing 30 years later. So if you want to trace that catastrophe back, then you really do need to know about the trauma of, that went on on the Eastern Front in 1914. Um, the initial fighting, the key fighting, the main front, was in a place called Galicia, which today is in southern Poland and Western Ukraine. At that time, it was the most northeasterly province of the Habsburg Empire. And Przemysl sat right in the middle of that. The fortress sat right in the middle of this province. And it was important that they positioned it there for three reasons. One is that it was defensible. There were, it was on the last high ground before the Russian border. The second reason was that the main rail routes ran through it. Um, and the third reason was that the Habsburg army didn't believe that it would be able to defend Galicia from a Russian invasion because the border, which was nearly 2,000 kilometers long, and a bit over 1,000 miles long, um, was, uh, was simply too long to, to defend. It was too long to station troops along. So the strategy and the reason why Przemysl was built, why a fortress was built there, was that the army would concentrate around this fortress uh, and then sally out in response to a Russian invasion, regardless of whether it came in the east or whether it came in the north. It gave the Habsburgs a lot of defensive flexibility. Um, what happened in 1914 was that, of course, the Habsburgs fought not just the, the Russians, but also the Serbs. And Conrad made some major, major mistakes in deploying his army. Um, firstly, he prioritized uh, deploying um, towards Serbia, which was, of course, much less frightening opponent than Russia. He wanted to try and defeat Serbia quickly, but it meant that troops, a lot of troops who would, became desperately needed in, 
in the north against Russia first went uh, down south to the Balkans to fight the Serbs, stayed there for a few weeks, and then were transported all the way northwards, if you like, two sides of an immense triangle, arriving too late to take part in anything other than a defeat. That's one problem. Um, Second problem that he had was that he changed his dispositions at the last minute. So he was going to have a a defensive disposition uh, right in the middle of the province. And then he said, no, actually, we'll go for the offense. We'll we'll, we'll attack outwards. Um, But by that point, the rail technicians said, well, it's too late. We can't can't unload the troops near the border now. We've got our rail schedules sorted. If we mess around with them, then, then there will be chaos. So Habsburg troops, although they were initially told to attack northeast, um, ended up being unloaded from railways in the middle of the province and then having to march all the way up to the boards of the Habsburg Empire, which was many tens of miles, uh, and then head off into Russian territory. And of course, by the time they got into battle, they and their horses were frequently exhausted. The Habsburg, start with, uh, the Habsburg army starts with a, a, an attack in the northeast, which kind of goes nowhere. Um, Conrad is very angry because the Germans don't help him because they've got their own problems with a Russian invasion of Germany further north. Um, And very quickly, the Russians are able to um, put their much larger army, um, uh, they're able to make their their, their numerical superiority felt. The Russians are attacking into prompts both from the north and from the east. Um, and in the north, there's rough parity, parity of forces, but in the east, without these troops who have been sent to the Balkans, um, Habsburg soldiers are massively, massively outnumbered. Uh, and the result is there's a break-in around uh, the Ukrainian city of, of, it's called today Lviv, um, at that time it was the capital of this province, and the Habsburg army in early September is smashed, and I mean really smashed. It's devastating. The casualties are extraordinary. About a third of the about a third of the men become casualties of some sort just in that in that first fighting. It's it's completely completely horrendous, and that the army reels back. It makes an attempt to, to stand again, amazingly, after all it's been through, and, and then it's broken through again. And um, there's a general order to retreat. And uh, in the 90 kilometers between Lviv and Przemyśla, it just streams backwards. It's lost much of its order. Discipline has gone. Um, it's also been infected with cholera and typhus, which have invaded the battlefield. And my, my book starts uh, with, with, by placing the reader on top of a tower in the, in the city of Przemyśla and watching this massive, defeated, devastated force come flooding in disorder right through the city. And that's the position that the Habsburgs found themselves a m- just a month and a half uh, into the First World War in mid-September. And it was in those circumstances that the fortress that my book is about became the Habsburg Empire's last hope for survival. So is that the reason why Conrad decided the fortress needed to be defended at all costs? Yes, that's exactly it. There wasn't anything else. They desperately needed time. He he, he sent out the order in mid-September that the fortress must be defended at all costs, and he took his army back another 200 kilometers, about just over 120 miles, something like that, um, back uh, further west 
where he where where he intended to refill its ranks to restore discipline to give it rest. And at this at this point there were plenty of there were plenty of reinforcements to be able to him to do that, but he desperately needed to get it back and give it some rest, otherwise he was going to lose the whole thing. So it's at this point that absolutely the fortress becomes key to buying that time which the army desperately, desperately needs to re establish itself and, and, and go back into the fight. And um, why? What, what were the initial Russian uh, plans to uh, take the fortress, and why did those plans uh, initially fail in um, October, November, nineteen fourteen? So yeah, so it's an incredibly dramatic moment in the war, I and mean, it's a massively dramatic moment. It's, it's one of those turning points. You know, if the Russians had taken the fortress in in October, nineteen fourteen. Most likely, the war would have been over by 1915. The Habsburg army would have fallen very, very quickly. Uh, that would have left Germany alone, and Germany alone could not have withstood both France and Russia, with, in addition, um, uh, the, a new British army in formation. Um, so it's yeah, it, it, it's it's a pivotal point. And the person leading the Russian forces, there are, uh, the Russian armies, there are three Russian armies around Przemyśla, is, uh, is General Brusilov, who I think if anyone, have heard, if anyone knows anything about the Eastern Front, they've heard of General Brusilov, because of course he won this huge victory in 1916 against the Habsburgs. And he's utterly intent on taking the fortress. He says, if we take this, we can open the way up for an invasion of Central Europe. Uh, this is what he's telling Stavka, the Russian high command. Um, so he's given the go-ahead to launch an assault. And uh, at the start of October, he, 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 he draws up his siege artillery. He gets his, 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 his best units into position. And at the start of October, he, uh, yeah, he launches an all-out attack on, on the fortress of Przemyśla. Now, in the book, you go into quite detailed on uh, Russian ethnic cleansing, for lack of a better expression. Um, I suppose at the time, perhaps they would use the expression population removal. Um, of um, In the portions of Galicia that the Russians had occupied in the time span of the book, how would you compare that um, exercise of uh, state power with what occurred in the region uh, in after ni- after late 1944, early 1945. So I think that what we're seeing is the beginnings of um, brutal imperial practices and modern programs of of population change come to that in a minute, but just, just to explain what happened. The Russians enter Galicia not simply planning on conquering the province, but actually on changing it. They're not simply interested in the land, if you like, but they are also interested, as you've said, in the population. Uh, the Russian Tsar, Nicholas II, talks about um, creating a great Russia to the Carpathian Mountains. And what he means by that is simply not just expanding Russia's borders uh, westwards, um, but also actually literally creating a great Russia of Russians, turning this region into into Russians. Um, 
Galicia, as I've said, is very ethnically mixed. There are Poles, Ukrainians and Jews living there. In the east, it's, uh, there are Poles, still plenty of Poles, but um, the majority population is Ukrainian-speaking, and there are significant numbers of Jews. And the Russians claim eastern Galicia on ethnic grounds. They say this should belong to Russia because, Ukraine, because these, these peoples, these non-Polish peoples, Ukrainian-speaking peoples, are actually, the, the term is used, little Russians. These are a branch of our people. They are little Russians. That's, the, that's what the imperial uh, uh, Russian army leadership thinks of them as. Um, in fact, the word Ukrainian, because it suggests a separate nation from Russia. And here, of course, in attitudes, we see even some links between then and today with what Putin has been doing in, uh, uh, in um, eastern Ukraine. And some of Putin himself has used that term, little Russians, to describe Ukrainians. Um, but the claim is that these are our people. They're, 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 they're not a separate nation. They're certainly not Poles. They shouldn't belong to the Hatsu again, but these are Russians. Um, and when the Russian army comes in, uh, it, does, it does three things. Firstly, in this region, locally, Poles are mostly in charge. There's, there's a, a, a lot of autonomy. There's a Polish government. Um, and these people, are dis these people are removed from power. So the Poles are disempowered. Then secondly... Um, uh, Ukrainians are to be little Russians. So one of one of the things that happens when uh, the army gets in, it finds out actually that Ukrainians have um, their own identities, their own religion, um, the, the the Greek Catholic religion um, in this region, uh, and their own language. Um, but rather than say, okay, these people are different. The, the answer to that is, right, okay, so we are going to introduce conversion campaigns to the Russian Orthodox Church. We're going to change over schools so they no longer teach you the Ukrainian language, but instead Ukrainian-speaking children will be taught in Russian. So this is, a form of, this is a form of cultural ethnic cleansing, if you like. And then the worst fate is resolved for the, um, for the province's Jews. There are around 800,000 Jews living in Galicia, um, and there's no place for them. And one of the things that we see very early on in the Russian invasion is pogroms, um, a wave of violence, uh, which uh, comes as soon as the Russian army invades. Cossacks, that is, mounted Russian troops, uh, attack Jews, humiliate Jews, um, loot their property, um, Jewish population, members of the Jewish population are killed, they're, they're, um, uh, they're, they're harassed, they're persecuted. Then through 19, end of 1914, early 1915, the, this radicalizes. Jews are accused of being spies and the army begins to try and force them out. And we have lots of cases of um, Jews being uh, in large numbers held hostage and moved into Russia as hostages and also whole communities being moved eastwards as well and that's ultimately exactly what happens in Przemyśla once it's captured um, in May 19 uh, uh, in, in, in May 1915 after the city is captured the entire population of 17,000 Jewish population of 17,000 people is forced eastwards and is, is cleansed from, from the region so, in fact, this type of uh, population removal is uh, qualitatively quite different than, um, and this I got from The Ring of Steel, your previous book, um, the French uh, population removal in Alsace-Lorraine in the beginning of the war. I think actually, from my memory, if my memory is correct, you stated in the book that was probably the first uh, population removal of the Great War that French 
exercise at that point? I wouldn't say it was qualitatively different. I would say it's it's quantitatively different. There are many, there are uh, larger numbers uh, being being moved around. Um, I think it is different from what happens 25 years later in the same region uh, because it's not genocidal. Um, that's that's an important difference. The Russians aren't actually aiming to exterminate Jews, but they are cleansing them from the region. Um, so there are links in terms of both racism and in terms of thinking about populations in ethnic terms, you know, uh, certain groups of people nationally defined or ethnically defined are perceived to be problematic, dangerous, undesirable. That's the first step. And the second step can be, therefore, they have to be moved out, which is what the Russians are doing and what actually the Nazis initially do um, or alternatively, they can be exterminated, which is the radicalization that goes on in Nazi policy from 1941 onwards. So there are differences, but there are also, in terms of thinking, uh, in terms of how populations are thought about, and of course in terms of the region itself, which becomes a, an area of experiment for the Russian Romanov regime, uh, then later um, the Nazi regime and, 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 and Stalin's regime, these links are these links are present from 1914 right up and beyond 1945. Why did the fortress ultimately fall in uh, late March 1915? Lack of food is the short answer. Uh, a lack of food. I mean, the, fort, the fortress garrison and the fortress population are, are very interesting. I, I I talk a lot about them in my book. One of the things that I wanted to really bring to readers was which kind of in, in, in coronavirus times feels, well, timely, is, is the experience of being isolated, the experience of being trapped in a, in a world that, that had, um, where mobility and globalization were growing. You know, the, the pre-1914 world was a globalized world. People were very, very mobile. If you just think about the huge numbers of immigrants at that time that were, that were coming to America's shores. Um, this was, this was, a world in which people generally had a world vista. They, they, they traveled long distances. Communications, of course, were getting much quick, quicker as well with the telegraph, the feelings of the telephone, um, you know, rise of new technology like motor cars as well. And of course, then above all, railways. Um, and what, what, what fascinates me about 1914 is how all this in the summer stops. It just stops. That's it. It stops. The end. Um, the Western world closes down and prepares for war. And Przemysl, because it's a fortress city, has a particularly intense experience of this right from the beginning of the war. Um, so the book is about is about isolation. It's a, it, it's about when uh, about this this very sudden change from mobility and globalization right to a sudden to point where where everything stops. Now, when everything stops, of course, one of the key things that a fortress city needs is, is, is food. And there's not enough done to prepare the fortress city and crucially to provision the fortress city at the start of the war. Even worse, when after the Russians' initial attack in October 1914, the Habsburg army, with its discipline restored and its ranks refilled, um, sweeps into the city. 
um, it's desperately short of food. So as a result, a lot of the provisions that have been stockpiled go then, both in terms of food actually and in terms of munitions, go then to the field army to keep it fighting just outside the city through October 1914, before then at the start of November it retreats and withdraws back, uh, uh, withdraws, um, withdraws back westwards. Um, and the result of that is that the city is, is, is left pretty is, is left without enough food. It's theoretically got enough food for around three months, uh, to sustain it for around three months. In the end, by um, through a variety of measures, including um, eating their own horses, the garrison is able to eke out longer than that, uh, from November right through to March, in around five months. Um, by the end of the, the siege, of course, there's, there's, there's huge malnutrition, there's even starvation. Soldiers are, are, are dropping from hunger, dropping from exposure. Um, it, it, it becomes a, a, a nightmare. Um, the army itself, the garrison, becomes a zombie army. Men are so weak that it takes them hours to get even small distances. Um, and the, the fortress eventually capitulates because... Uh, the gar- because the commander recognises uh, we don't have enough food, we are not going to get relieved by the Habsburg army, um, and we have to, you know, we 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 have three more days, and 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 we cannot go in any longer. Why was the subsequent Russian occupation so short? I believe approximately three months. Largely because of the Germans. I mean, one has to think, of course, about this. This war as um, being a multi-front war, a multi-theater war, uh, the the fortress, city fortress, falls on the 22nd of March 1915. It's then uh, under Russian control until early June, when, uh, when 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 it's brought back by the central powers, and the central powers win it back. Um, in January, February, March, the German army isn't in a position to help the Habsburgs retake it, despite the fact that as a result of the huge battles of the autumn, it's become a symbol of prestige, a, a, kind of a, a place which, which in propaganda terms for the Habsburg Empire holds a similar position that Stalingrad did for the Soviet army in the Second World War, you know, as a, as a mark of resist, resistance, a sign of, 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 of of, of the power and the readiness of the Habsburg army to, to, to see the, the, the conflict through to the bitter end. Um, so it's very important to capture it back. But the Germans, the, the Habsburgs can't do it themselves. Um, Conrad launches uh, three offensives over the Carpathian Mountains in winter, probably the worst fighting that has ever taken place in history, probably even worse than some of the more famous battles on the Eastern Front in the Second World War. Uh, This is very high altitude fighting. There's hundreds of thousands of men involved. 600,000 men become uh, casualties, many of them simply through frostbite. Um, And, of course, Conrad Conrad launches this because uh, over the mountains is, as the bird flies, the shortest way to get to the fortress. But, of course, over, over, over a mountain range... In winter, it's 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 madness, um, and he's not able to he he's not able to do it. The Germans are busy in France and in Belgium, of course. Um, 
the Germans hoped that they would defeat France quickly. The plan is at the start of the war to defeat France in six weeks. That doesn't happen. They're thwarted at the Battle of the Marne uh, in early September 1914. And then, of course, the, the, in, in the west, the focus of the fighting moves further north to, to Belgium, to the area around Ypres. And Falkenhayn spends the end of 1914 and early 1915 trying to break through there against the British and the Belgian armies. Uh, and he's intent on doing that at that early point because he's convinced that if he can break through, then he can unlock the Western Front, defeat the Western enemies, and, and that for Germany is the key to victory. So at this key time for Przemyśle in early 1915, the Germans had no troops to spare. That changes in the early summer with the offensive of Gorlitsa Tarnov, uh, which is launched in early May. And that proves to be a massive success. The Germans actually, uh, the Germans bring over troops uh, down to um, down to Galicia to assist the Habsburgs, but they plan crucially. They plan the Germans plan and organise the offensive themselves. The Habsburg army, with its incompetent commander, plays very much second fiddle to them, uh, and they break through the Russian lines very very quickly and uh, start a huge Russian retreat. Um, the Russians. The Russians lose huge numbers of men. This Gorlitz Atanov uh, offensive, which takes some techniques from the West, particularly in its use of artillery, proves to be utterly devastating. And the Russians reel backwards. And in the process of that retreat, they also lose the, the fortress city of Przemyśle. In the book overall, I think it would be correct to say that uh, the KK army was incompetently led and therefore had incompetent, um, I'm sorry, dis dysfunctional results in terms of um, battlefield performance. Would it, be correct, would it be correct to say that, unlike most of the other armies that in the Great War, in terms of the great powers, Russia, France, UK, Germany, even Italy to some extent, there does not appear to have been a positive learning curve for the K&K army? Um, do you agree with that? And if, if so, why was that the case? Well, I, I'd be a bit wary about ideas of learning curves. I think that in all of the other armies you mentioned, what we see is for sure a process of learning, um, but it's, it's not by any means a smooth curve. There are um, mistakes made, sometimes lessons are drawn, uh, but sometimes those mistakes are, are, are repeated. We see that with the British Army. We see that with the French Army. Um, although the German Army, tactically and operationally, is, is 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 much admired in the literature, we actually see that as well in the case of the German Army too. So, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't talk about anything as smooth as a curve, a learning curve, in any case, in any in the case of any army. I think with the Habsburg Army, it's. The, the, the problems are greater, though. I think that is true. Although we also see big problems in the Russian army. Um, and I think it comes from a variety of sources. I think the, my, my number one reason would be uh, Conrad um, and the fact that, he, you know, unlike other armies, uh, other armies do exchange their major leadership, you know, actually pretty quickly. Joff is uh, in charge of the French army through... Um, 14, 15, 16, but then he's, 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 he's dismissed in favor of uh, uh, Nivelle and then Pétain. So, you know, that 
that that changes. The British changed their high command pretty quickly uh, in 1915. Uh, General French is replaced by General Haig. Um, the Germans, of course, change theirs as well. When when commanders don't work out, um, Moltke, who fails at the Marne, is replaced very quickly by Falkenhayn in 1914, who then, in his turn, uh, after Verdun, is replaced very quick, is replaced in mid 1916 by Hindenburg and Ludendorff. Conrad, by contrast, keeps going through until the spring, early summer of 1917 despite all of the huge mistakes he's made. So he's, he's a constant menace, if you like, to the Habsburg army's ability to fight well. That said, I think there are other problems too, in fairness to him. Um, the army, compared with its opponents, we've talked about, is less well-equipped in 1914. And it's very, very, very difficult to, um, uh, to uh, replace and, and um, uh, make good those problems in a wartime in wartime and then of course the other the other issue is that the Habsburg army is extraordinarily diverse and this is something that I had a lot of fun with when I was when I was writing about the garrison of Przemyśla which had Poles, Ukrainians, Austrian Germans, Hungarians who if you take a bit have a closer look and have a bit of a probe turn out often actually to be Romanian or Serbian speaking soldiers there are um, Italian speaking Tyrolians there are a fair number of Czech officers there are Slovaks and so it goes on and in in the peacetime period, the way that the army had dealt with that diversity was to have officers who could speak their men's language. The problem is, is that, firstly, the army expands, um, so there are plenty of reservists who don't necessarily have such a good grasp of the language of the men whom they command. And the second issue is that a lot of those professional officers who, whatever their battlefield tactical capabilities, were very proficient linguists, um, die. They, Officers die in huge, huge numbers as a result of Conrad's tactical and operational mistakes in 1914, and they're irreplaceable. And so part of the problem that the Habsburg army has is that it's very, very difficult to train. The Germans improve by, um, to some degree, dropping formal discipline and encouraging individual initiative, individual willpower, um, encouraging training an individual in, in tactics which, which, which demand um, a very high quality of non-commissioned officer as well as officer. And the Habsburgs have much greater problems doing that. Um, because of their language difficulties, because of the huge losses they've suffered in 1914, um, and also because they overall have a much less educated population than, uh, uh, than, than does Germany or France. So all of that plays into the, uh, into the tactical problems the Habsburg army has, although Conrad, at the end of the day, has a lot of blood on his hands. In the end, he would be my number one reason for the huge problems that the army has. Uh, so perhaps that explains why one of Conrad's few uh, acknowledged um, talents was the fact that he himself was a gifted linguist, correct? Yeah, oh yeah, goodness. I think he spoke, I think he spoke something like seven languages fluently. Yeah, yeah, he did. I mean, that was, that, that was as, as a linguist, he was very, very impressed as a general, perhaps less so. If you wanted people to take one thing away from the book, Professor, what would it be? Can I have two? Would that be all right? Yes, um, two will be fine. There's two, okay? All right. So the first one is, uh, is 
saying that we've talked about, which is thinking about the roots of the horror that befell East Central Europe, that um, that East Central Europe today, Poland, Ukraine, Belarus, the Baltic states, looks entirely different now than it did 100 years ago, um, because it was the site of of the world's greatest tragedy in the in, in the middle of last century with with the holocaust and with the ethnic cleansing and if we're going to understand that extraordinary process then the message my book is giving is that it's not enough simply to periodize and think about well this is the second world war or this is the period of the great dictators with hitler and stalin 2833 but actually we need to link that second great catastrophe of the 20th century with 1914, with the First World War, with the first great catastrophe, because it's at this point that it begins. And I think my book makes that very clear. I mean, I'd be thrilled to know what readers make of that argument. But I think so many of the of the things that we associate with the, the conflict of, 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 of 41 to 45, 39 to 45, um, the, the, the brutal fighting, the strategies of starvation, aerial bombardment, um, and of course, above all, ethnic cleansing. All of these things, although people don't realize it, they appear right from 1914, when a civilization, the world, the, the, who, who people who live in it think, you know, imagine will, will go on forever, suddenly and dramatically collapses. So that's the, that's that's my first my my first takeaway thing the links between East Central Europe's catastrophe in mid century and 1914. The second one is is this is a book that's above all about people. It's above all about what it was like to be there to experience it. It was it was a, a fantastically exciting book to write because I found these great memoirs, great diaries, um, very, very expressive descriptions of how people felt, how people um, experienced the, the, the process of, of, of having perfectly normal, often very, in the case of the officers, bourgeois lives, and then being thrown into this chaos and violence. And I hope that people who read it, readers who read the book, get a sense of what it was like to be there, what it was like to be in a world that seemed to be stable, that seemed to, um, for sure, there were tensions, but uh, didn't. That, that it was unimaginable that anything could change suddenly. And then in the summer, have all of that swept away and uh, forever, and, 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 and to be replaced by something more violent, more unimaginably violent, more uncertain, and, and more lasting for decades than, than anyone could ever have possibly imagined or expected. In the end, it's, it, it's a book about the fragility of civilization, and I, I hope that comes through for readers. Yes, actually, I think it does very, very well and very topical, uh, given current circumstances the world over in terms of uh, this horrendous virus. virus. With that observation, Professor Watson, I would like to thank you very much for being so kind to speak with us today. This is Charles Cotillo. Thanks for listening to New Books in History, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Thank you, Professor Watson. Thank you very, very much.